Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I have Tia Elder from the Oregon Wine History Archive with me here as well. And we're here interviewing uh, Brendan Stater West uh, via Zoom from France. It's December 8th, 2020. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rich, for having me. So going to the first, the most important question first, which is why wine? Why wine? Well, I like to say very simply, I caught the wine bug, what I consider to be the wine bug when I uh, moved to France, actually. Um, I moved to France back in 2007, and uh, I originally came to France to teach English, and uh, I was living in Paris, and uh, just happened to have a coworker who was really, really, really into wine, like a serious wine amateur, and he brought me along to some, uh, make it a long story short, he brought me along to some different wine tastings, um, different um, kind of evenings around wine, wine pairings. Um, the guy was nuts about, it. I mean, he lived to, I mean, he worked pretty much to, to drink and to enjoy wine. And it was during that process that I kind of had learned and, and, and understood that to get to the heart of any French person, you have to go through food and wine. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I mean, anybody that comes to France and you visit France or even other parts of Europe, you recognize that food and wine have a central part of life. I mean, and without food and wine, you're not going to be fully understanding the culture or the place or the people that you're in contact with. And me, who I, when I moved to France, I really had the ambition and the, and the, the uh, intent at least to really um, become integrated into the, to the culture, understand people, understand the language, understand the intrinsic ins and outs of uh, what makes France, France. And I understood that like, everything goes down at the dinner table. I mean, almost. And, um, and so in that process, it was understanding that, um, you know, I would almost like to say that everything revolves around the wine because people make food, but then they pretty much decide what they're going to cook because they have an idea of what kind of wine they want to open, like, you know, the weekend that's coming up with their friends and their family. And so it's like, I kind of came down to the conclusion of almost like life almost revolves around like what is a nice meal around like wine in the bottle. And um, when I realized that I just, I realized, you know, obviously how important that was. And, and then I started kind of being introduced to some interesting wines. And in the process, I was realizing, hey, I'm young. At that time I was what, 22 years old. Um, didn't really know what I was doing with my life other than knowing that I was happy being in France in that time. Um, I had met a woman um, at that time too, uh, who I became involved with and um, I wanted to stay in France. And so I ended up finding a way to, uh, to do some studies and, um, you know, being able to study and work allows you to kind of, you know, long, you know, make your visa longer. So I went back to school and realized that, you know, I, I if, I, well, I told myself if I'm going to go back to school, what would I like to study? And of course, at that time I was most interested in wine. And so, I went through a wine program in Paris uh, with the intent to just really understand French wine. So all the different wine regions, all the different 
um, you know, varieties and, um, and really just really, you know, get, get to know all of it. And then in that process, it was just kind of like going through the rabbit hole of like one thing leading to another and just the passion getting more and more just deepening and becoming more and more intense as more as I was meeting people in the industry, whether it be sommeliers, whether it be winemakers, whether it be distributors, importers. Um, and I, I had, had the opportunity to meet all these people because I was, you know, crossing their, crossing them, coming across them at different wine tastings, professional wine tastings I was able to get into in Paris, even though I wasn't yet really like, I was just in the, in the wine program learning about wine. And that led me to, I mean, this is a long story short, but that led me to meeting some people who I ended up um, working with in Paris. And it just kind of, the thing about wine is it's like, it just one thing led to another and it just felt, it clicked for me. And um, that's really kind of a long, long version of how I caught the book, but um, it kind of came down to just meeting one person and that one person sharing their passion and their love and me realizing that that um, was much more of um that was just a very symbolic person to what was the broader um, definition of French culture. So, so let's back up for a second here. You, you mentioned getting getting to Paris in, in two thousand and seven. Tell me about before 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 France. Uh, tell me about kind of growing up and, and what what took you to France in the first place. Um, yeah, so I I'm usually I'm originally from uh, Eugene, Oregon. Um, so went to the University of Oregon. I am a duck. I gotta I gotta say that I'm proud. Um, I, uh, you know, pretty much grew up my whole life in Eugene and decided to, uh, continue my studies in, in Eugene at the U of O and, um, and when I was there at the U of O, I really didn't, <clears throat> I knew at some point in my life, I wanted to just get out of the country, adventure, explore. And, um, around that time I had met a young French woman and, you know, everybody said, well, the best way to learn a language to get to really know her and her culture, um, you know, is to travel. And so long story short, after I finished high school, we met when I was going into my senior year of high school, I traveled to France in the summer of 2004. Um, and at that point I was hooked. I was just like, this is an amazing place. I spent a whole summer here. And I was like, I got to find a way to come back. And so I, as soon as I enrolled at the U of O, I started, you know, just studying French pretty much. And just in the process, just got really, really um, interested in the culture. And I studied business also on the side. And um, so kind of double majored and everything, which, which helped me, gave me kind of a broader perspective of, um, you know, two different types of studies and everything that we could do. And um, and then I just during that process of studying at the U of O, I was researching and I found a way to get into France because, you know, having a visa to work visa is, is tricky to get into Europe. Um, and I found a way to get in, which was being an assistant English teacher in, uh, in a high school in France. And so that was my way in in 2007. You've mentioned a couple of times the, the, the French culture and kind of wanting to be kind of immersed in it and understand it. I'm curious. Uh, in your from your in your first visit and, and when you actually moved, was there was there anything sort of surprising about the culture? Did was it what you expected? Was it what you hoped <laughs> would be? Yeah, uh, good question. I, I um, it was everything and nothing as I expected it to be. 
it was everything in the sense that it was um you know visiting france is one thing and then living here on a daily basis and another thing like anywhere any like any place in the world i think um i would say at least visiting france was very like you just stay on the i mean stay more or less on the surface of things so what i had understood is that you know the french were nice and they were friendly but um you know they also kind of could be edgy at times too and that could have their own kind of grit to them and um their own perception of the world and their own pride too to be french and um i realized that more when i by living here understanding that there's a history of thousands of years of the English would, or the, excuse me, the French would say savoir-faire, which is just like the, the artisanal know-how to do things by your, your way of doing things by your hands. But, you know, the, this kind of knowledge that's been passed down from generations to generations to generations. And in the process, um, you know, living here and understanding that more, I understand and I even am now part of that indirectly, part of that lineage. And I understand the importance to, of holding on to that and being proud of that because it's, these kinds of things that are slowly in our world um, fading away, I believe. And um, that I believe, I, I feel strongly that I, I feel like I have the duty to, to continue to hold on to and, and hopefully one day to someone, whether it be my daughters that I have now or to someone else, pass that, pass that on. That's a whole other story of things, but I would like to say that living here, yes, there's a big difference I would say of how the French and the Americans see um, running businesses and entrepreneurship, I would say, as a whole. That's the first thing that always comes to my mind that I like to state. And it's changing, I feel like, with my generation, but it's not the same thing in the United States. It's very, we're very open and we're very encouraging to that, I would say. And being an outsider, not French, especially coming from the United States and saying, not only like, I want to start a business, I want to make wine. I want to work the land that's, not mine that's not been passed down to me you know it's it was gutsy on i believe in, in many ways and and I, things happened and opened up but it was not an easy path too um and so i would just say that it's the it's the vision and the drive sometimes that, that um i think defines a big difference of how americans and french approach not just businesses as a whole but like um just projects and creativity um that's that, i mean i'm being very very general about that when i when i say it that way but um i want to be you know yeah not just i don't want to slam one culture or another because it's not like one's better than another it's just different um so i don't know if that answers your question yeah absolutely and it leads to the follow-up that you kind of started to talk about obviously in oregon we've had quite the French influx of winemakers and wine professionals in the last decade or two. Obviously you're doing the opposite of that and a, and a much, much smaller numbers of, of Americans going to make wine in France. So I'm curious about that as you started into education, were there, what was the attitude of the French toward you coming in and wanting to learn French wine in the way that you did? Yeah, I think it was, um, it was always been, it's always been something of like, at first people will look at me and kind of hold a certain distance. And then they'll kind of be like, who's this kid that thinks that, you know, he's, I, that's the attitude that is, I get, you know, from people. And then once people hear I, that I speak French, 
I am fluent that I make wine. And then they get the chance to taste it. I mean, this is now I'm talking about before history. I mean, it wasn't the case so much then, but it's always been kind of like, let's keep you at a distance. Let's get a feel for you to see like if you're, you know, sincere about things, if you're approaching this, this, uh, this field with some humility and with a little bit of, uh, um, with some integrity. And I think in the process of people seeing over time that that's how I want to approach just my life as a whole, that I'm actually really, really well integrated into the community. And I've been really well integrated into the community because um, I think I haven't come across, come at it in the, in, a, in an approach of saying like, I'm here to show you, or I'm here to do something that you're not doing. I'm, I'm here to learn and I'm here. I want to like, I want to learn and I want to help and encourage and, and even, you know, make the community even stronger and, um, and, and thrive more. So it's been, it's been very, very challenging at times. Um, but it's also had its rewards of, I've also had many extraordinary moments too, when I've been able to be with some of France's best winemakers and have share a glass with them. And it'd be that simple. And those are the best, those are the moments that I hold on to in my mind, not the moments that are where I felt like I've been shunned as an American. So let's pick it back up when you talked about, uh, you, you kind of found, found the passion, found the rabbit hole as we hear so often in wine that people, people find it and they just, they just can't stop going down and finding the next thing. So you, you, you sign up to do, or you start to do wine education. Uh, tell me about what that leads to next for you. And, and at what point it, mm. it goes past being just a passion into something you actually want to do for your life. Yeah, so so I finished the wine program, and at that point, it had become really clear that at least wine was not just something that I wanted to explore as a hobby, that it was something I really wanted to integrate into a, my life as a lifestyle, as a way of working and a way to make a living, and a way of living, simply. Um, and in that process of thinking, I was kind of like poking around and starting to see the different parts, jobs in the wine industry that would be appropriate for the lifestyle that I wanted to have. And I kind of really, really crossed it out soon on my list that I, I did not want to work in a restaurant <laughs> atmosphere, field, the restaurant field. And, and uh, it's just, I didn't want to have the, the hours of working in a restaurant and the stress of it. And I wanted to have much more of a laid back approach to it. So what was interesting for me in the beginning of my um, wine career was um, I, I quickly realized I wanted to work in retail because I wanted to have that really, really intimate and really close contact with my clients and really be able to be a part of their discovery of wine and also help them hopefully get that wine bug in their own way and, and, and discover the beauty of wine um, in more of a profound and deep way. And, you know, in that process um, of selling wine, it became, you know, so I found, so that's a long way of saying that I, ended up finding uh, a job in retail. I was working at a company named, that was no longer exists now. Uh, it's called Spring. That's, uh, um, was, uh, was originally a restaurant um, opened by an American in Paris named, his name was Daniel Rose. He um, now has different restaurants in um, New York City and um, also in Paris still. And uh, Worked with him and then he opened a wine store, um, a retail store with uh, Joshua Adler, uh, who helped him with the wine program there. And then 
it was all kind of not long after that I met the event, both of those guys, and they were like, well, we need someone to help run the retail store with us. And so I hopped on board and joined the team then. And so we were like all these different Americans working together in Paris. And like, you know, Daniel was running a high end, you know, restaurant, almost Michelin star uh, level restaurant. And Josh was running the wine program of it. And I was doing retail. It was just like this, you know, dream team of Americans <laughs> living in Paris and working in, in the restaurant, in the wine restaurant, in the food industry. It was great. It was a beautiful time. And so, um, you know, but during that time, it was, you know, it was in Paris. And so it had been at that point almost like, four years I had been living in Paris and just it started the grind of you know city life started to really get to me it was really hard and so I had more and more and the more I was meeting produce you know winemakers and traveling to different wine regions and really seeing what their life looked like and understanding what it was to be in the production side of it I'm it became really clear like that actually that's really what was interesting um and I kind of started having in the back of my mind like wow like what would it be like for me to actually make my own wine? Like, that's kind of cool. And so that kind of, that thought led me to think, okay, well, if I was to make my own wine, where would I want to go? You know, what, what, what kind of, you know, soil do I want to, what I would be interested in working with? What type of terroir, you know, and what kind of wine would I want to make? Um, and it just so happened to be at that time that I was selling the wines of uh, Domaine Guiberto, um, in, of Sumir and their wines, you know, we only got a several, only a couple cases every year. So really, you know, high allocated wines. And I just happened to like pick up the phone and I was like, okay, I just need to like go straight out for the people who actually might be interested in training me. Because at that point I was like, okay, I need to get, I need to leave Paris. Um, I want to, I want to get trained again and, and, and learn directly as an apprentice from wine, French winemaker, like how to make wine. It became really clear to me, like that was the path that I needed to, that I needed to go for. And so I picked up the phone and this was in 2000 and early 2012. And I started calling winemakers all over France. And then, you know, I called people in Burgundy and of course like Burgundy's Burgundy and kind of closed off and kind of like, uh, yeah yeah and you know not having like a direct contact with a lot of people there um kind of closed off some a lot of doors for me and then i picked up the phone and i started you know calling producers that who wines that we were selling at, at the the spring shop at the shop called spring in, in paris and and long story short uh i started narrowing down my list like also through tasting wines that what would the area that interested me the most was kind of the Saumur Anjou area in France in the Loire Valley because I got at that time really really hooked on Chenin Blanc and so I was like okay well if I'm gonna if I want to you know learn how to make wine anywhere I think you know these are the this is the area the Saumur Anjou areas where I could you know you know learn how to make you know, the, the kind of wines that I love to drink most and so I called you know several different uh, wineries and Domaine Guiberto was the only one who was like, oh, let me give it some thought. And someone that someone told me a while ago in um, when I moved to France that if someone in France says maybe, like that's the French way of saying yes, actually. <laughs> so, like, so he said maybe. So I was like, okay, I'm holding on to this. So I called him back like, like the next week. And I was like, 
come on, like I'm, I'm motivated. Like I'm going to work hard. Like I, I want to, I really want to learn from you. And he was like, I've never done this before. Give me a call back in one week. And I knew at that point, I was like, he's going to cave in. And so I called him back one week later and he was like, okay, I see that you're just like, you really, you want it bad. It's like, if you really want to learn that bad, then he was like, I don't even have the money to pay you. But and I was like, we'll find a way to like work things out. And so long story short, he took me under his wing. I became his apprentice um, and then also enrolled on the side uh, at a viticulture and enology program that allowed me to get a French diploma in viticulture and enology. Um, and that lasted, you know, for two years. So I was, you know, working as an apprentice for him for two years and then studying on the side. Um, and during that whole time of studies, it just became more and more clear that what I really wanted in the future was to get my own label going and do my own thing, not knowing how it would be possible. It was a, kind of a, just a crazy far-fetched idea, but yeah, I mean, that's just the, maybe kind of the condensed version of how I got from working in retail in Paris to being in Somir and then being in Somir working for Roman Giver or being in the apprentice of Roman Giver to how I ended up also making my own winer, my own label now. So before we get back to that, I'm curious about the retail part of things as you, as you decided that was the kind of your, your entree into the industry. I'm curious about your perspectives, uh, what you learned from the retail side and also about being an American in an American company in Paris selling wine to French people. How did, how did that work? How, how did it work? Did they, did they, did they respect your opinion? Did you have to, how, how convincing did you have to be to sell, to sell wine in that way? Well, I would say, you know, the wine program was so well established um, that it was like the wine spoke for themselves. So like people would come in and they would be like, okay, like I want a bottle of wine. And then, you know, you do your typical, you ask your typical questions of that you would ask any client in retail and, and people quickly were not like, oh, you're American. Like, no, I, I, I only had that maybe like two times out of like a thousand or something. It was so rare. It was so rare. I had more to like, people actually got really interested because they were like, oh, I hear a little accent. Like, where are you from? And then we would get talking. I'm, I'm American here. You know, we're different American guys working together. And people were really, really intrigued by our story. And that curiosity actually helped us in sales because it was something that they, they were, I think, indirectly people in their minds were like, wow, like if these guys are really into like what we're doing here in France and they're only working pretty much with French like wines and they're only working with like local french products like then okay like we can listen i felt like people were really really open and they were and we had a really really faithful clientele and um so it wasn't that was never a challenge it was never like people being snobby and saying you're american we're not going to listen to you or like we're american you're american we're curious so and then once we got them getting you know tasting wines and we would hold often we would hold um Every other week, we would hold um, tastings and people, we would, you know, send out tons of emails and do a lot of communication about it so that people would come and, and people saw that it was a place too that was, um, yeah, I would say where people could come and gather and enjoy wine together and that we were Americans integrating, you know, um, the beauty of what French wine or what wine is in France, you know, we were doing that in their setting and in their culture and we were even you know embellishing I would say that and um 
so there was only, I think, a lot of respect that came from the French towards both Daniel, Joshua, and myself about that. I'm also curious about the about sort of your the level of expertise needed to to sell wine, especially French wine. There's there's so much to learn. There's so much to know. Yeah. At what at what point did you feel comfortable with your level of wine knowledge that you could speak kind of knowledgeably about wine at that level? I don't know. I don't know, Rich, that I could say that there was like one specific moment where I was like, it clicked and I was like, I got it. Because if I'm to be honest with you, even today, I would say that light still has not clicked because I'm still learning, you know? I mean, and that's the beauty of wine is that it's not like a, it's the journey, it's the pursuit of it. It's not necessarily the final destination of where you're arriving that isn't, that's important. So, but with that said, I would say that, you know, it was really after like, I would say it was really after like, you know, my wine pro program was so dense. The first, you know, the first year long training that I did was so dense. And I had spent so much time outside of that, at the time at school, going to producers, going to the, all the different areas, you know, the winemaking areas of France, meeting producers, learning that it really went fast. I would say within a year, year and a half, I would say I felt comfortable talking to people about, you know, on the general scheme of things, you know, what's being planted, where in France, what's generalist, generally the styles from different areas and what types of wines are being made. Past that, really having that, um, a more of a in-depth culture where I was able to taste a lot of different bottles and put them away in my mind, in the back of my mind, and then bring out those memories back of how all those, how those wines tasted you know, your own personal wine encyclopedia, I guess, if I'm to say, that took me maybe, you know, really like three, four years to kind of get, like, get going. And I'm still, I mean, that's still one of those things that's like, it's always, it's, it's perpetually changing and evolving. And, and I still feel like I'm, I'm learning what that's like. And, and so it took a while, it took a while, but I think it's like anything else, you know, you're, if we're curious about things, it can go really fast. You mentioned earlier that that Chenin Blanc was was something you were you were passionate about quickly. Were there were there other types of wines that that drew you in? And and as you started to think about producing, yeah, what, what other kinds of wines were there that you wanted to produce? What what were your inspirations for production? Sure, sure. So of course, being an Oregonian, <laughs> of course. I mean, like, if I'm an Oregonian, I have to talk about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I mean, right? I mean, it's like. <laughs> I mean, there are different, you know, every, you know, there are different grapes that are being grown and made in Oregon and everything and wines that are being made. So, but with that said, I mean, growing up in a, in a family that um, off, wine was always a part of um, meals in the evening and um, family events and Pinot Noir being really like the variety that everybody was always drinking at home and family was always drinking, of course, that was my first intuition was like, I want to go to Burgundy and learn how to grow and make Pinot Noir. And then it was kind of on the side where I was like, I realized like, okay, there, there's more to wine than Pinot Noir. I mean, like Pinot Noir is still for me kind of like the holy grail of like red wine, but like um, there's also the holy grail of white wine too. <laughs> and and um, I, I, I think 
um, to answer your question, that was really that I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to learn about Pinot, and also I realized that like there was just maybe more. Yeah, that there were maybe it was going to be a little bit more tricky for me to go down that path. And I've never been someone I think that's traveled like the the path of what's easier, what's most typical. And so at that time of also like asking myself, like, what are the different kinds of wines that I'd like to explore, like of how to make like it never it really was pretty quickly clear in my mind that I, I, I did not want to be the American that tried to go to Burgundy to make something happen in Burgundy. Like I, I wanted to, I want to do something a little different. So does that answer your question though? So in addition to Chenin Blanc then, what else did inspire you? What else did you decide if not Pinot Noir than this? Okay. Yeah, so um, I mean, I love Chardonnay. I drink a lot of, um, you know, white Burgundy, um, a lot of Chablis wines. I'm really, really into Alsatian wines, so all the Alsatian varietals as well. Riesling, I think, I mean, if I'm to like give you the list, it's like Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and Chardonnay are just like my my three top real white varietals. And I think it was uh, really, I think a lot of the Alsatian varietals really speak to me because there's a certain uh, diversity in the aromatic profiles that we have, as well as like a certain like a certain purity and transparency in terms of terroir that they also allow to, to shine through. And I think that's always been something that I've been really uh, sensitive to um, from the beginning in, in wine is, is really understanding that there's more than just the grape, that the grape is part of the larger scheme of terroir. I mean, it's important, it's very important. It holds a central, central um, identity in the notion of terroir, but there's terroirs multi-dimensional and so yeah i mean all the alsatian varietals i would say a lot of kind of wines being made more in the northern part of france as a whole i like i have a tendency to drink much more wines with like higher acidity and that are more lifted and so yeah so i want to talk about your your experience you mentioned your you were uh printing at the same time as you were taking formal education uh, I, I want to, I'm curious about that as doing it at the same time, what were you, what were you learning that, that, that kind of agreed with each other? And what were you learning on the, uh, on the job that was different than the book? And, and as you're, as you're going through this, what are you thinking in terms of like what you want to make, what your philosophy is going to be when you do start making your own thing? Yeah. Yeah. I would say like, for me, what was really, uh, what was a big contrast for me was um, at least at school, in a lot of my enology classes was learning of like everything that more or less should be done. I put that in quotation, you know, marks because it's like everything that should be done or, you know, like how a wine should be stable or, you know, just kind of these standards I think that are set for like, what is a clean wine? What is a dirty wine? You know, all of these definitions that are very like, give I think for me give a general vocabulary for everybody to kind of put wines like give a clean slate and for people to be able to understand what we're all talking about but past that the definition is totally different from every one person to another so for me it was really like understanding that okay like there's wine that's made along like if we're to follow the textbooks like that's one way of making wine but then there's like a whole other way of making wine which is like what I didn't 
what I understood at that point was that like actually being on, you know, working on the field and working in the vineyards and actually 90% of my work that I was learning was not in the cellar. It was not like how to strip the wine of all of its elements and then put them back together in a different way. It was like, okay, let's try to put, have all those elements together as a whole and then let them go and then just make sure that that process goes well. I mean, so in the large scheme of things, I would say that what I learned was much more of a hands-off approach. Hands-off, not saying non, it's, I'm not saying non-interventional. I'm saying hands-off of like, let's let it go its own course and make sure that it goes in its course in the way that we want it to go, but without having to intervene in, 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 in most, you know, as often as some would do. So that's kind of like where I feel like the textbooks kind of like clash with, like, I would say what a lot of kind of like artisanal kind of small wineries are kind of like doing here in France, you know? Um, and at the same time, like I also, same thing, like on the viticulture side. So like, there's a lot of like textbook things in terms of like, well, this is how like your, you know, trellising should be. This is how your pruning system should be and everything. And it's great. I mean, those are all like great things to consider, but it's like, you know, sometimes you're in certain sites that just don't allow those textbook things to be even possible, you know? And so it's like, that's where it gets interesting because it's like, you know, and that's why I think school and the education of wine is really important. Many people, I think, decide, I'm, this is on a side note, I'm kind of going down a whole other path here, but on a side note, I really think that it's important to get a, more of a formal education in wine because it allows us to understand many more options why things are done in a certain way so that when and if a winemaker or someone who's you know a vineyard manager or whatever you know goes down a certain path and they you know experiences a certain problem or an issue they're facing they can have a reference point to which they go to without that reference point i think it's much more of a dangerous thing or i think it's much more of an ignorant thing to to say okay well i just rely on on only intuition. I think that there's something powerful of saying, okay, well, I understand maybe some science and then also that science maybe allows or reinforces my intuition in a different way. And that's how I function a lot in terms of how I go with my vineyard management and how I go with my winemaking is like, okay, I need to know on like the textbooks, what the textbooks say, but then there's like, I'm also, I feel really free to say like, okay, like I'm not gonna stick to that because my intuitions or my history now of, having several vintages under my own belt, tell me something different. Um, so there's many different elements to that, um, but I would say that there's a lot of like, yeah, I mean, there's that whole aspect of intuition and that kind of metaphysical side of winemaking that we all don't understand and would like to understand, but don't want to at the same time. It's like this weird thing um, that makes wine just magical and beautiful. and. And yet, like, that's really important to keep that side of it kind of mysterious. And yet it's really important to also understand all of the different possible outcomes and all of the different possible elements that, that, that come into play when we're working with nature. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of this balance of, like, for me, of, like, you know, experience and intuition with also some science-based um, knowledge too. So, 
when you were when you were looking to apprentice, did you ever consider not doing formal education, or was that something you were always going to do when you got into production? Yeah, yeah, I really did. I, for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to go down the road of doing studies on the side. I didn't see the interest of it, um, and I it was actually. <laughs> Speaking to a lot of these small artisanal winemakers that just, they all encourage most, I would say 75% of them really encouraged me. They said, we did not go down that path, but we actually encourage. And they, a lot of them said, if we had the choice to, to go down that path, if we were to redo, um, you know, go back in our time and my time and my history and change things, they would have gone through and done some studies, you know? And that was interesting for me. It was like, wow, someone so successful with so much knowledge is, is saying like, I mean, that's wisdom. I mean, like for me, that's like where that's part of like the transmission takes place is like of, of a wise winemaker saying like, this is my mistake. I would have done it differently. I mean, like that's, that doesn't have I any, mean, we can't even put a value on that kind of knowledge. I mean, like that kind of like wisdom. And so for me, it was really saying, okay, well, that's, it was humbling to me because it was like, not what I wanted. But then I was hearing all these people saying, like, this is really good. This could be best for you. And so me, it was just kind of like, okay, let's just do it. I know it's like more, you know, time, money, resources that are going to have to be poured into this. But I realized in the end, it would, it would, it would probably be beneficial. And I do not regret it. You mentioned a couple of times that you, you were, you were looking at the smaller artisanal winemakers and that was your kind of reference point uh, at some point in there, did you, were you ever thinking of being a, a smaller piece on a larger machine working for a larger domain? Or was it always your idea that you wanted to start something that was, that was yours? That's just the side of, I think a lot of Americans, <laughs> it's just like, it was, it was just, it was uh, very clear in the beginning that I really wanted to do something on my own. Um, what was clear, what was clear for me was that it was, uh, kind of such a something that was on a whole other level of anything I had ever accomplished in my life of saying like, I want to start my own label. And at that point, understanding what that meant in terms of, you know, investment in terms of financial, all different kinds of investment, my, all different kinds of resources that needed to be invested into making that happen. Um, that was, I was uh, really ignorant about that. But what was for sure is that I had that drive in my belly of saying like, I want to do something on my own and I want my, my own vision of wine to be able to uh, be portrayed and be put in a bottle and be enjoyed by people and not have to just be the winemaker. And, you know, I mean, not saying it's just many, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It was just for me, really something that I really, really had, I held deeply in my heart of like saying, I wanted to, I want to create something that has my name on it or has my own label or whatever and really put my signature on it. Um, and that was just, that was really clear for me from the beginning. That was really clear. You talked a little earlier about some of the, some of the things you learned as, as an apprentice in terms of the, the kind of the hands-offness of it. I'm curious about learning production also, was there anything that surprised you? Uh, you obviously had a deep knowledge of wine at this point, but uh, this, you're, as you're actually getting into making it and, and, the, and the, the, the seasonal aspect of making wine, was there anything about the process of making wine that, that caught you off guard or that wasn't what you expected? Um, 
yeah. I mean, I laugh about it now. It was like, like I remember my first harvest of just feeling like this is so not as sexy as I imagined it to be. Like, I mean, I think the the how wine. I don't know what how this image is even like, like why people have this image of winemakers or winemaking as being something that's really, I mean, it is, it has its beautiful, romantic, like glamorous sides to it that we all love and that we all enjoy. Um, don't get me wrong, but 90% of it, I feel like, you know, I either have grease from the tractors that are stuck on my hands or dirt on my, under my fingernails and my clothes are dirty all the time and I don't smell good. And realizing during the first harvest that it was like, that's like the nature of it and it has to you know you have to go through the kind of the dirty side of the job like before getting to the really the clean or pristine pristine side of it is you know there's just that's how it is and um I didn't realize to what like level of energy it took I thought it was naively I thought it was more simple than that and that the whole, you know, whole aspect of growing the grapes during the whole year was so time consuming. And then, um, and then on the process of also like when, you know, you have a certain amount of, you know, you know, certain volume of grapes that you have to process that that's also demands just like massive, massive resources. And <clears throat> I was not prepared for that. And so that really hit me hard. And I wouldn't say that it was overwhelming for me but it was a big surprise and it really caught me off guard because I I had just this whole romantic idea of things that was just not was far from the reality did it ever discourage you um yes it has I've gone through many moments of if you ask my parents today like I'm so glad that I have two great parents in my life because I've had so many moments of doubt honestly of even to this I mean like less now to this day but I've had many moments of doubt where it's just like what am I like why, why am I pursuing this because there's like and I've had those moments often in the vintages where we've gone through a lot of like just hard issues with the climate and you know we're really susceptible to spring frost and that's been kind of you know since I started making my own wine in 2000 under my label in 2015 so 16, 2016, 17, and 2019, I got hit with frost in three of my, you know, five vintages. And so it's, it's been a very like hard thing to navigate and just push through when you're, you know, you get to harvest and then you're bringing in the fruit and, you know, you sit down and you calculate how much fruit you're bringing in per acre and you're realizing it's like all that work, like I'm only getting this, you know? And then there's the whole stress of like, okay, well, if I'm only able to make this amount of my wine, like, how am I also going to, like, make my, allow my business to continue to develop or even function, like, you know, so there's all this whole, like, economic challenges that come with it um, that are really stressful and that, yeah, I, I have been very discouraged and I have been very challenged, that have challenged me at times and almost to the point of wanting to give up. And um, that's another aspect is that realized, like, too, that I think any great winemaker um that is able to you know push through all of these different challenges that they go through it's because they have a community of people around them too that support them and the whole 
what, as I'm understood, and especially in wine, is that there's a whole technical aspect of how to make wine, how to make great wine. But there's a whole human aspect that I don't think that we touch on enough in the wine industry. You know, some people do, but I would like to today touch on and just say it like, without a great team, without a great human network of community, like it would not be possible. And it's like, that's where the beauty of like, I think that's where kind of like the story kind of comes full end is like, I'm able to do this because there are people around me that support me and that I have a great team that I work with and that I can rely on other people. And that's the story of wine. It's like how people, it brings people together, you know? So from the beginning to the end, it brings people together. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've gone through, it's been, it's not been a linear, straight, easy path. It's been rocky very for sure. Really appreciate that 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 saying there because we 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 hear about wine bringing people together a lot. I uh, really it, I've never heard it that way in terms of all along the process. It's such an interesting point uh, that I really appreciate you making there. Um, I want to talk about you starting your label. So you you you've got you've got your kind of apprenticeship under your belt. You've got your education under your belt. Tell me about the actual like starting a label, all, all of the things that go into it, uh, and 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 taking all the steps you had to take to to get it started. Yeah, so in France, it's a very like heavy administrative process of like getting a business going, just tons of paperwork, <laughs> um, you know, meeting with different banks. And then you know, one of my challenges was like starting my own business was like, I didn't have a whole lot of capital that I was working with to start. And so it was like, well, how can I convince a bank that an American from Oregon <laughs> is going to be able to make a product that's going to going to sell and that is reliable and that they can trust me with and long story short you know coming together but the challenges of it was from first and foremost from an administrative side and then obviously for me the biggest challenge was not so much actually the administrative side it was like well how can I just get some grapes in the first process in the first place to like start working with you know and so it was like okay I started going down all the different like paths okay well maybe I can buy some vineyards and then I realized like that, that's impossible to buy vineyards. How can I maybe like lease out some vineyards? And then realizing like oh, that's really really hard even to find someone like a, an owner who will lease out the vineyards because on this on a side note in France like once you sign like a a lease with a landowner it's just like it's almost impossible to break that lease for your whole life for your whole career as a winemaker. I mean it it gives you a security that's quite amazing. But at the same time, it freezes up a lot of opportunities or possibilities, according to different wine regions that you're in. In the Somer area, it's it's hard. It's hard to find vineyards that are available. And um, and then I realized that was hard. So I started develop, you know, exploring the route of like, well, how can I maybe find some grapes to purchase and then like make the wine from those grapes? And same thing calling around, it was like, well, a lot of like, you know producers or growers have contracts already with, you know, different negociants and people who are purchasing grapes. And so, you know, I it, actually, I had kind of, I just got really lucky because the person who I was, you know, Roman Giberto, the person who I was apprenticing with, he just happened, he said, listen, I have two and a half acres. I have one hectare. I have two and a half acres that I don't need that I could lease out to you. This could get you going. And he's like, you know, getting something at least going and a small project would get your name out there. It would 
allow you to be more credible when you come to, if you're able to meet anybody that does have some vineyards that they maybe will want to lease out and it will help you just get going. And so I was like, this is amazing. And so of course, you know, this was in 2000, late 2014. So I signed a lease in the beginning of 2015 and then did all the vineyard work pretty much myself. Like in 2015, I was like, after work, I was out in the vineyards, like on the weekends, I was out in the work in the vineyards. Like I really, really wanted to like make that vineyard, like my child, you know, and really understand all of the different parts of the vineyard and the soil and the climate. And that's a long way of saying that I, the challenge of at least getting any label going here in France or anywhere is like, well, you gotta have grapes at a point to make the wine. And um, it came relatively easy for me. It was more, what was more challenging for me was when I really decided like, okay, I'm satisfied with making this amount of wine, but I wanna make some more. Like, I don't wanna just only be making one wine in small volume. Like I wanna develop, you know, I wanna develop my project and I'm capable of it. And then, so that went to me more seriously going out to meeting different people who I thought, you know, could help me, you know, potentially either buy or, or lease out some vineyards and just doors kept closing and closing and closing and closing and closing. And this was in 2017. And I got to the point where in 2017, I was like, okay, like this just might be it. Like I'm not, I'm not happy. I want to. And so I started calling actually a couple of people back in Oregon being like, I'm done here in France. Like I want to come home. And I want to get something going in Oregon. Like, could you take me under your wing? Can I work for you for a while? And then try to see what would be possible in Oregon. And um, it was actually Ken Palo, Walter Scott. He was like, him and I become friends. And he was like, dude, you have such, it'd be awesome. Like, there's so much, you know, like, people, you know, the, the, the Oregon uh, industry needs like people like you. And so he was so excited and thrilled. He was like, I'd love to help you. And I felt so much enthusiasm actually. And um, what pretty much happened was I, right as the moment I was like, okay, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm done, I'm done fighting the fight. I happened to, an old elderly man, he came to me and he, he heard, he said, I, I saw your name in the local newspaper that you're making wine and I have some vineyards that I like to lease out and I can't find anybody. And it just happened to be in like one of our in one of our sites in some area. It's called Breze, which is like kind of our local like Grand Cru. I mean, it really is an amazing, amazing site for making just high end level wines. And so he he visit I visited the sites with him, and I was like, of course, like of course I'll sign the lease, whatever price, you know, like you want to get like lease it out to me. So I saw him, and that allowed me to bump up to from one hectare three and a half so yeah i mean over over eight, over eight acres at that point and then um i just acquired in this past year two more hectares so i mean it's just like you know slowly but surely it's just like you know one step after another and i think that's been a hard part of the journey which has been being just patient and learning that in france like things do not maybe go as fast and as hard as they do in the United States. But it's like, you have to just like, let things kind of come to you if, you know, and some people say it's destiny, some people it's something else. But I think in France, just like, you have to be more patient with how business goes. 
that's that's pretty incredible that the, the timing is is pretty amazing uh tell me the, the your kind of the vision behind your label or the meaning behind your label what what you what you want your wines to express yeah so first and foremost I, i'm really of the kind of the 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 old school <laughs> i don't know if it's old school or new school i, I i'm just really i'm what what makes me crazy about wine and just really passionate about wine is this notion of terroir. I mean, it's first, it's a word that we can't even translate into English and it's for a reason. It's that it's something that like embodies um, so many dimensions of, of um, what, it, what can be expressed through a wine. And so I would say my first and foremost, first and foremost, my, my main interest is to be able to express terroir in the wines that I'm making. Um, wines that are elegant, that are pure, that are approachable, um, and that are also, that can be enjoyed, you know, young, and that can also be aged and enjoyed also in after several years of being in the bottle. And I, I, I think that, that, you know, I don't want to be pretentious about, you know, how I approach and what I want to say and how I want to sell my wines. I just really want to say that it's like, I want, I want them to, um, I don't know. I guess if, if, if I'm to transmit any message through my wine, it's like, I want to inspire people to like, to, to dream big about like, if they're in the wine industry and the food industry, whatever industry they're in, it's like, Hey, I'm from the outside. I made something happen. That was, I think a lot of people dream of experiencing. I realize that now that I'm like, I'm, I'm doing something. I'm living something that I think a lot of people dream of. And it's possible. It really, really is. And it takes time and it takes grit and it takes, you know, courage and it takes a good community of people around and but it's possible and I think that's that that story I think is just like the story of life that I want to trans I mean it's maybe very very you know big and juicy everything I'm saying I'm just what, what I want to say is that I think I want people to be able to sit down open a bottle of my wine and really and be able to dream and really experience like the fullness of life when they are able to when able to drink it and at the same time, get geeky about it if they want, you know, that's cool about wine. It's like, it's so, so, so simple, something that we just take a simple pleasure in drinking and sipping. And yet it can be something that we can get really, really technical about and go really, really far into it. And that's just what I want. I love that. That's an amazing answer. Tell me what you are, what you're growing and making right now. What are, what are on your, your acres uh, in terms of grape varietals and, and you have anything that you're not making yet that you want to? Yeah, so I make only still wine right now. I make uh, three different white uh, wines, um, only from Chenin Blanc. So from three different sites that I have um, and from young vines of around five years old up until I have a wine that I make some vines that are over 70 years old, so very old vines. And um, obviously those three different wines are very unique in their own way. And, and then I make two different red wines, uh, only from Cabernet Franc um, in the same, uh, same idea as the white. So different age of vines, same thing from about five years old to up to about uh, 80 years old in age. And those wines obviously different expressing and different made in a different way to be enjoyed in different settings and contexts. So um, if I'm to get, if I'm, of course, as a winemaker, I mean, like you want to, 
it's just so frustrating because you want to get your hands on every everything i mean that's my american side of me is like i want to experiment i want to like try these different things and that's you know kind of as a chef would experiment in their in their cuisine and be throwing in different spices and flavors and different um you know all these different things and i the same thing is i would love to um well i kind of have a project that's simmering on the side of maybe getting into some sparkling doing some sparkling wine um kind of like with a champenois like champagne method style um and so that's kind of on the back burner i would say but past that it's just um i want to go further into much maybe much more of what i'm doing already now but getting into more of an understanding of uh, understanding the terroirs better more and more um so it's not so much like what can I do in a new way or like what new product that I can make? It's like, I want to dive deeper into what I'm doing and try, try to make it better. We talked a bit about your winemaking philosophy earlier. I'm curious about your kind of vineyard philosophy, the, the, the vineyard own part of, of what you're doing and how, how that work influences winemaking and vice versa and, and how it's changed for you as you've grown into your career. Yeah. In the beginning, I didn't understand the importance of understanding the different sites because um, I, I always felt like that was just something that like winemakers were talking about and and that was only really specific to winemakers. And then I understood like once being on like understanding through working in vineyards, like and seeing how during the season um, and the different vintages also the different sites in the vineyards would um, how they would grow and how they would react to different climate climate issues and um i think what i've seen is really like that understanding the sites allow us to be more i feel like it allows us to um not predict but to kind of have a an idea as to maybe how the vines or the grapes might um ripen or evolve um and, and what style of wine we can make from those different sites that we're making. Um, with that said, I, once again, that's something that is in, for me, constantly evolving because as the age of the vines, you know, the vines continue to age, tastes change, you know, what we're doing in the vineyards and how we're managing the vineyards that also alters the, you know, the, the final result of the grapes that we're bringing in. Um, you know, one of the things, I mean, it's a small example. One of the things that I'm experimenting with, um, on one of my, on one of the vineyards of my old vine Cabernet Franc is instead of doing some hedging is like rolling around the apex, the top of the vines over the top <clears throat> wire and not doing any hedging and seeing how that influences the, you know, what I'm seeing on paper in terms of the analysis that I'm, that I'm pointing out, if that's changing anything, if that's changing anything, and the texture of the wine and how I also manage, um, you know, in my vinifications, how I'm extracting and so on and so forth. And then therefore how I'm, you know, what kind of, you know, vessel am I going to work with or, you know, the aging of the wine. So all these different things I'm, I want to tweak a little bit and understand, but understanding that, you know, an element that you do tweak in your vineyard management is also going to have a final impact. That's really important also in the, in the wine that you're making. So, yeah, I would say that it's it's been a big journey for me of understanding that um, 
it's not something same thing it's not something that is only intuitive it's not something that should be only scientific you know scientifically based um and how the decisions are made but it's like a combination of both and understanding too that all those elements come together and are constantly evolving which is therefore the importance of which i love about what it is to be a funeral which is like we're there to observe you know we have the job of observing and adapting things as things change because they are and that's the beauty of it i think that's what makes the job really 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 interesting is being able to observe make those changes and then see how those changes will finally impact the grapes that we're growing One of the things that's that's come up a lot in, in our past conversations with, with French winemakers who come here is they're kind of overwhelmed by the amount of freedom they suddenly have when they're in Oregon versus versus France. So I'm curious uh, in your role, how much how much how many decisions do you get to make? How much choice do you have, and how much is sort of regulated by by the government? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that's regulated by the government, a lot. So in terms of the freedom, there's not a lot. I mean. Sure, I can go, if I wanna go plant Pinot Noir tomorrow in my back, in my garden, I can plant Pinot Noir in my garden. Nobody's gonna tell me that I can't. Past that, am I able to put a, like the appellation on my wine labels and say that this is a Pinot Noir grown in Saumur? No, I can't. I mean, so there are specific laws and rules that exist for very, very good reasons. Don't get me wrong. Unfortunately though, that do, this is my American way of seeing things, that do influence and do, um, limit the, the further depth of understanding of the, the sites that, you know, winemakers are growing their grapes on now in France. And I feel like if those laws or some of those things were loosened a little bit, it would allow us to evolve quicker and change and adapt quicker to the different changes that we're experiencing too. Um, so yes, it's, it's frustrating. And yet at the same time, it's once again, for me, a question of perspective, because I also see it as an opportunity to, to um, within those, within that framework of laws and of restrictions, I feel like it's a, it's, it's a way to also go deeper into what has historically been done and understand things even more and even improve what has historically been done. So it's, really a question of perspective for me. I really see it in the way of like saying it's bad and, and limiting. And yet at the same time, it's really forcing us to only go in a certain direction. And it depends on, you know, how much we want to resist or not. So since you're, since you're so involved in both the, the vigneron part of things and in the winemaking part of things, take me through how your kind of year breaks down as uh, in your work and what you're doing different times of the year and, and how, how you found that rhythm. Yeah. So, um, right now I'm in December, January, February are pretty calm. It's a pretty calm period of the year for us. So obviously the days are shorter. Um, I was out pruning all day today, for example. So, um, lovely days when it's sunny and, lovely and, and not so lovely when it's Oregon type weather. And like yesterday afternoon when it was raining and it was only, you know, 35 degrees outside and that's just not as fun, but that's part of the job. Um, and then, you know, March comes along and, and nature starts waking back up again and days get longer. And, you know, I do 
I only work in, or I only do organic uh, farming. And so, you know, we're, I'm kind of getting back on the tractor a little bit, making sure that um, at least how we manage, you know, their grass management, there's not a, like, there's how that, yeah, let's just say I'm spending a lot of time mechanically getting rid of a lot of the grass that we have. Uh, and then, you know, it's just from really from March until, you know, March, April, May are kind of our really like three intense months in the vineyards, at least, um, where we're, um, you know, pretty much running after how fast the, the vines are growing and trying to catch up to them and make sure that they grow in the way that they, they need to grow. And, um, and then also on the side, in terms of like what we're doing in the cellar. So uh, like I filter a lot of my wines in January um, to be then bottled in like April. So um, I'll do some, you know, pretty into like a good, good week of bottling in April and then just get back up into the vineyard. And then um, really we're, I mean, I don't know how specific I should get into the, you know, the technical ingredient and the great details of like what we're doing in the vineyard, but we're really, I'm mean, really in the vineyard until I would say like mid July and then mid July, late July, say to like mid August, I would say there's nothing that we're really doing. We're just letting the vines, you know, continue their process of, um, ripening and everything and then once mid-august comes around typically we start doing a little you know leaf thinning and getting kind of start getting like the cellar ready for harvest and whatnot but and then vinification like when harvest and vinification period comes it's really like september october and then maybe like the first half of november it's just like only cellar work um and that's kind of like how my year is kind of broken down and then obviously intertwined with the cellar work and the vineyard work is administrative stuff sales and communication and so that's kind of more or less like I focus a lot of my energy and most of my energy on in the vineyards because I recognize that it's really in the vineyards where I'm getting the quality of the grapes that I want to I need to have to make the quality wine that I want to make um, and then my second priority is the winemaking and then administrative and then sales you know sales and administration kind of come in third place even I shouldn't say that but it's the reality of it I think if you, you know, <laughs> from for myself today at least so you mentioned uh, organic farming I'm, I'm curious what made you choose that and, and does that complicate things at all for you does that make things more difficult yeah 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 it does make things more <laughs> once again a question of perspective for me um because um also I chose it because I would say historically the wines that I've tasted and where I feel like I'm getting the most vibrancy from and the most, um, where there's for me the most, the best lecture and the best transparency of this notion of terroir is coming through grapes that are being organically farmed. That's my history of, you know, the wines I've tasted and that's just very personal to myself. Um, and that was just, because I, I was, I always felt like I was getting a different depth in those wines that I, that's just naturally what draw, drew me to wanting to also farm organically. And then I was also talking to local growers and seeing how their vineyard management was seeing also how their vines reacted to, you know, the, 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 the organic farming and more and more seeing that with, you know, 
periods of both drought and then periods where we're having rainfall that is increasing actually, that the vines, the balance of the vines through their cycle is actually much more homogenous and staying much more regular um, compared to, you know, people who are not farming organically. I've, I see, I, you know, I'm out in the vineyards all the time. And so I observe and it's different. I would say, you know, the vines are adapting like any plant does, but in a different way. And it seems like they're, those vines go through a little bit more stress, maybe I would say as a whole. So just in the process of observing, speaking with others, tasting myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, there have been vintages 2016, like I missed maybe like two windows of where I probably should have been of like gone and sprayed, for example, for mildew. And I missed those windows and lost about 30% of the crop because I got <laughs> mildew on the, during flowering. And so they got the mildew on the flowers and it just wasn't, it was ugly and it was bad. And those are our experiences where, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you have to sometimes lose to be able to like learn, you know, and, and I, that's where you grow. That's where I grew a lot. It was at least not in the easy times and the easy vintages where everything was easy. It was like in the times where I really made some mistakes and then learned. So. I'm curious about the, you, you mentioned, we were talking about organic farming, uh, obviously sort of taking off here in Oregon in the last decade, we've seen huge increase in the amount of organics, biodynamic type farming here. What are you seeing there? Is it is organic taking off? Is it, is it predominant? Is it still predominantly uh, kind of uh, old school farming? What, do, what are you seeing? It's taking off. It's taking off. Um, I would like to say it's taking off because producers feel like that they could have a different quality of wines that they're making. Unfortunately, I feel like it's taking off mostly for commercial, you know, for sales more than it is for anything else. And that's why I find it a little bit unfortunate is because they're not, and it's happening a little bit too quickly in my opinion. I mean, that's, it's weird for someone who's farming organically. Most people are, who are farming organically or biodynamically are really like militant of saying like only organic and only biodynamic and it needs to go happen, you know, like tomorrow everybody needs to, it's like, okay, like I'm, I'm really into this idea of like, let's transition to things, but in a smart, intelligent way that make things sustainable. I mean, we're talking about like what needs to be sustainable. And I have several examples of, of, of some guys that I know in the area who have like, all of a sudden they're like, I have a hundred acres, like that we're not being farmed organically. And tomorrow, next year, like I'm converting everything to organic farming. And it's like, they have like a year, like 2008, was for us where we got slammed I mean like the mildew pressure was just like insane and we were having tropical I mean just like it was like I felt like we were in the Caribbean almost it was so humid and, 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 and warm and like they just got like slammed with mildew and it was like and then they lost a lot of their crop and that was their first year converting all their vines into organic farming so all of a sudden now they're like oh, we don't want to go in or like we don't want to you know, we don't, we want to go take a step back and all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe like, instead of doing everything, why don't you just do like, I don't know, like convert maybe like one or two sites and then next year, maybe a little bit more and then just progressively get into it. And I think, I feel like it's going a little too fast. And I think if it was to slow down a little bit so that the winemakers could also technically uh, uh, um, gain more knowledge and resources as to how to farm organically in a way that allows them to maintain um, the volume that they need 
to increase the quality of what they're doing. Um, and also, once again, the human aspect of understand how it's inf influencing their teams, that change, um, like how that all plays into the picture. So it's, 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 yeah, it's unfortunately a little fast in my opinion, but it's happening very, it's, it's, it's what's happening. Yeah, it's the new trend. You spoke earlier about your kind of prioritization and how sales is kind of, uh, has to be kind of down, down, down near the bottom a little bit because of everything else you're working on. Tell me about that, about building a business and selling your wine, uh, starting a label like you did and selling your wine. Uh, how have you found sales to go and, and, and what have, it, what have been the, the, the successes so far? Yeah, the hardest part of understand for me, hardest part, it was, for me, it was really clear in the beginning. It was like, this is the wine that I want to make. This is the style of wine I want to make. This is my direction of where I want to go. It's like, okay, now how do I, like, how do I get that message out there? And then how do I get other people to be on board with that? So therefore like, okay, well, here's my product. Like, this is the idea of like the market that I'd like it to, to be in, but like literally like, who's gonna distribute my wines? Like, who's gonna, who's gonna latch onto this? Like they can, you know, and I think a big, um, you know, I was mentored and I'm, you know, I'm the apprentice of Roman Giberto, so a really well-known winemaker in the Sumer area and very successful, um, who really taught me, I think, all, you know, to walk around the, you know, how to, this, a lot of the sales, uh, dimension of winemaking and you know of the wine uh you know business as a winemaker and he really taught me the importance of like choosing putting just the wines in the right hands um in order for them to be well distributed and therefore for the development of the business to go easier and faster and so he really quickly told me like okay if you want your business to develop you need to get your hands really in the in a lot of restaurants and really high-end restaurants and um, get them in the hands of sommeliers that um, that are well-known in the industry so that they can therefore get interested and talk about it to other people. And that was kind of my strategy. It was like, okay, well, that was one part of my strategy. And then the other part of my strategy where I clearly made a big mistake in the beginning was this whole dimension of, okay, well, I have a, a certain volume that I have to distribute and sell. And I have all these people who are interested in it. And I kind of sold myself out in the sense of like, I just started selling it, my wines to all the people who are like, oh, I don't want your wine, I want your wine. Instead of like really like saying, okay, well, if I really like, you know, in an intelligent way, wanted to distribute my wines in a market, make sure that for example, there's enough volume for that, for those distributors to be working with too. And I was like, in the beginning, like, oh, I just was so flattered by that all these different importers in different countries were like, I wanna work with your wines. And that they were willing to sell 10 cases of my wines in their country. And I was so flattered by that. And that after I realized I was so disappointed, like when other people were coming to me and I had two-star Michelin restaurant, someone from Paris coming to me and saying, I'd like to work with your wines and me feeling like I was stupid because I didn't have any wine to sell them anymore. And yet like, you know, my Belgian importer only brought, you know, took 120 bottles for all of Belgium. And so I was just like realizing, I was like, those 120 bottles could have been to, a, or 60 of those bottles could have been for the restaurant. And that restaurant could have like, got my word out much more faster in a different way. And so I understood that it's like, okay, maybe limit the amount of markets that I'm working with 
put a little bit more volume in those markets so that like the different people who are working on them can really get it, get it out there. And then like once, like they're happy, my distributor are happy because they can make some money off of my wines. I can, you know, get my wine sold out too. I'm happy. And it's like, understanding all of those like pieces of it is just like, that's, that was really new to me. And I still feel like I'm learning and I'm trying to figure those pieces out, especially with COVID because it's like, I mean, that's a whole other dimension of like walking the ropes with like this situation and making sure that, you know, staying faithful to the business model that I have and yet like making sure that sales continue so that I keep my head afloat. And so it's kind of just trying to understand the ins and outs of um, sales. It's not, you know, I have no experience in that and didn't know anybody really that had any experience in that either. So it was not easy. Well, that, that leads me right into my next question, which was going to be about, about COVID. So I'm, I'm curious, obviously we're well into dealing with it now, nine, nine or 10 months in now. Um, how has it affected your kind of day-to-day -day work and, and, and your sales efforts? And what do you see, what, what, what's changed for you? What do you see changing uh, as we come out of it? Okay, so once again, question of perspective. And the great thing is this year, um, COVID actually has had forced myself and my team to be much more present in the vineyard. So I was spending less time in sales at least and less time with clients that were coming through and wanting to taste. And it was a vintage too that was tricky in the vineyard. And it required me to be in the vineyard to be very reactive and to be able to be very available. Um, and so it was really good because it allowed me to uh i think understand once again understand a lot of more of my sites i was able to spend some time with some local um how do you say it in english like kind of like technicians like people who are uh soil scientists and spend some time getting into understanding my soil a little bit more to understand also maybe how i can um, increase the fertility in the soil a little bit. So all, all these different things that I didn't have time for before, all of a sudden I was like, hey, I have some more time for this. Like, this is cool. Like, this is going to help me actually in my business. Like, this is going to help my business actually flourish and become even stronger like, after. Um, so it's, it's allowed me to dive a little bit deeper into the work that I've already been doing. Um, it's obviously been tricky from sales because, you know, I'm, it, I'm not... I'm not necessarily in this, you know, where I want to be in sales for, for the past year. However, I'm, I'm doing okay. Like, and it's, it's been interesting because I've had um, some of my clients be able to say like, Hey, um, it's going to be tricky to, you know, pick up the wines that we, we wanted to pick up, but uh, we want to stay on board for when the situation kind of gets better. And at the same time, I've had some new clients come in and say like, Hey, our market's doing fine right now. We can, we can bring in your wine. Uh, would you be interested in it? And so it's been a lot of kind of just adapting, um, you know, obviously with the restaurants, a lot of the restaurants worldwide being closed, um, or barely functioning. I've sold a lot much more to retail and that's helped me a lot. And, um, so just kind of, yeah, it's, it's, once again, adapting, it's the, I feel like that's just a lot of what the, my job was like is just like constantly observing, adapting, and then and then adjusting to make sure that you know things continue to move forward in a healthy way. So we talked earlier a little bit about the about the Oregon wine industry. Obviously, you mentioned Ken at, at Walter Scott. I'm I'm curious how how you how closely you followed the Oregon wine industry uh, while you've been abroad, and and what kind of your perspectives on the Oregon wine industry are, and and sort of what 
your the French perspective as you understand it is about the Oregon wine industry. Sure. Um, so I have I, I feel like I followed it kind of quite vaguely, not really in depth. Um, I, I I mean I'm more or less you know every time I come home I usually I come home every summer to see my family in Oregon, um, and I spend some time you know. Um, you know, tasting and, and meeting with people, some of the people that I know that are winemakers um, in Oregon. And, and it's kind of, you know, through them that I kind of have been following the evolution of things. Um, I've been very, I'm very proud of what's happening in Oregon um, to be a winemaker in France from Oregon. I feel very proud because I'm able to talk about how far the wine Oregon industry has come, where it's going also, I feel from my point of view of being an outsider now and um, being so far away. And I feel like it's, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot of like, I wouldn't say I'm really opinionated about it. What I do know is that I, I think that there's just, I feel through tasting a lot of the wines that are being made in, people like Ken that are really, I feel like pushing the, the edges of what's historically been done and trying to understand sites and understanding what can be done in Oregon. Um, I think I'm really excited because I feel like it's just the beginning of something that's on a whole other level of greatness. Um, and that if, you know, the, there can continue to be a certain um, solidarity in the wine industry in Oregon that I don't see Maybe, I don't know to what extent that is really true when it comes to being a winemaker in Oregon, but what I'm hearing is that there's more or less a solidarity and people are, there's a support in the wine community uh, and a respect for one another. And I think that if, or, you know, the, that can, can be maintained and that spirit can be maintained that I think has existed from the beginning. Um, and if that can be maintained, then I think Oregon, it's only going to continue to get better. And things are even better. Things are going to be done. Um, so I'm excited of it, of course. In the back of my mind, like there's something in me that's just like that itches of saying, like, don't you want to, don't you want to get your hands in Oregon, you know, and doing something in Oregon? Of, of course, of course, I do. Um, in the long term, I really want to. I would love to. I'd love to come back home and to learn myself and kind of almost start over all again. At, you know, ground zero and understand um, and, and, and play with, you know, making some wine in Oregon. Of course, that crosses my mind. It's, uh, I'm here for a while, I have two young girls. And so um, uh, until they're at least 18 years old, I think I'm, I'm here in France. So that <laughs> might be a while. You mentioned where you where you think Oregon wine industry is going and, and kind of the potential it has. Tell me, speak a bit more about that uh, from your perspective. What yeah? Is, what is the potential? Uh, where, where do you think it's going? Yeah. So what what I would say um, what comes to my mind when I say that is um, I think when I come home, what often strikes me as you know the French ask me like, what's different? Like what's different between how the French make wine and how the Americans make wine? that's a great question for me. Cause it's like, well, I don't know, like typically in France and in Europe, there's like this notion of vigneron, you know, like the man or woman who's managing their vineyards and then vinifying, making their own wines and then selling their wines. Um, 
I think what, I, what I'm seeing and observing is a shift of perspective of understanding that in order for uh, the, with both climatic issues and I think just a shift in terms of the demands of what the market is asking for, I think winemakers are having to um, almost get, I feel like are being pushed kind of in that direction of what it is to of going towards being a vigneron, you know, and not just being a winemaker or just growing grapes. Um, or at least that vision of vigneron is pushing winemakers into a closer relationship with their growers and is allowing that collaboration to be much more um, just tighter, I would say. And what I'm seeing in, 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 a whole, in a larger scheme of things, it feels like there wants to be an understanding of, okay, well, we know that certain varietals can grow here. Let's go a little bit deeper as to like, what can make that more interesting. So that once in, we're getting into that notion of vineyard and terroir, that seems like it's being pushed a little bit more and more every year. Every year. And, it's, and it seems like people are really wanting to dig deeper into that. And that's what's exciting for me. And that's where I think like, you know, people are also, um, it just, I, I'm so amazed. I mean, this is a side note. I'm so amazed with how fast the wine industry has grown both in Oregon and even in the United States as a whole compared to the thousands of years that it's taken in Europe for people to learn how to grow grapes and understand terroir. And I mean, I'm saying I mean, there's a lot that still needs to be understood in the United States, don't get me wrong, but what I'm just so amazed with is the capacity of Americans to see and to be able to go observe and learn and then bring that savoir faire, that knowledge back and to adapt that locally and for that to just go so fast. And um, I think now that there's an understanding of what has been done and what is the potential, I think there's a certain level that is to yet be explored of another level of like, let's push that quality to another level. Um, just as I think France has, ha has and is in, even in the, still in the process of, 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 of experiencing because with the demands, you know, of, and with the, you know, you know, unfortunately and unfortunately, you know, wines are being made now all over the world in all different kinds of, all different continents and all different types of places and countries. And so France is having to adapt and ask, like, you know, push themselves and the French winemakers are having to push, continue to push themselves further into what they're doing as is, as are the Americans. And I think that's great. And I think as a whole, like that's what needs to happen is that challenge, almost like force challenge to take place so that we can continue to, to grow and to, to evolve. Yeah. So what about as you, as you look ahead for your own future, uh, what do you see happening? What do you, what do you hope for yourself and, and for your brand as you look ahead five, 10 years in the future? Yeah. Um, where I would like to be is, um, so right now I'm, um, making my wines under the roof of Domingue Rato. So I'm using a lot of the, the facilities and the equipment and everything myself um, at his place. And that's great. My goal is in obviously in 10 years to be maybe doing a little bit more of that under my own roof. Um, and I would like to, you know, uh, what I would like is to continue the, you know, what I'm doing now, grow my business up till maybe like six hectares. So it's like, 
you know, I would say, you know, like around 15 acres or so. Um, and then maybe get a side project going on where um, I'd like to do kind of like a negotiant type like project where I'd like to purchase some grapes, maybe purchase some other varietals that I can find in the area, but that aren't, wouldn't necessarily allow me to put the appellation on the labels, other white varietals. You know, some people grow Pinot Gris, some people grow Sauvignon Blanc here in the area. Uh, try making that, I mean, in a different way, experimenting with it, experimenting with different river aisles, as I was saying, my sparkling wine, getting that, you know, understanding that and doing that in kind of a champagne with the champagne method. And so with that champagne method it takes time also. So maybe getting that, understanding that more. Um, and then I think really in the five and the next 10 years, it's, I'm, I'm very, very young, but yet I really want to make sure that even with the, the youth in the age that I'm in, I want to make sure that I start sharing my knowledge. So um, spending time maybe with an apprentice and being able to, you know, um, transmit myself. I think that would be a, you know, a lovely way to, um, you know, for me in a, in a, in a, really to feel like I've been successful, not just in sales, not just in creating a story, but really like in making sure that the, the, the art and the craft is being held and is being passed down. Along those lines, you mentioned your, your two young daughters. Do you have any visions of this being a multi-generational project? If they would like to, they have all the freedom. If they would like to, one day, uh, you know, get their hands dirty and do it along um, side, then I would, I would love that to be uh, something that would be available for them to have. Um, as I said, they're young, they're only five and a half and two and a half years old. So at this point, it's, <laughs> it's hard, to, hard to say what they'll, what they'll choose one day. But um, what it's for sure is that I want them to grow up in a, in a you know, in, the, in a context where farming is and the values around farming in the farmer's life and winemaking is those values are transmitted and um where they can grow up in a home with good wine good family good conversations and great moments around the table that's what i want them to have most first and foremost so if, uh if you were if someone were to come to you, you mentioned kind of being a being a, a mentor to someone uh, if someone were to come to you and ask you for your words of wisdom on, on getting into the wine industry, whether it's in France, whether it's in America, whether it's just in the world in general, what would your words of wisdom to someone be if they wanted to do what you've done? Oh, um, I would say come at it with uh, curiosity and humility, because I think those are values that uh, will allow you any person in any field to eventually succeed. And I think um, to not, to not uh, limit themselves to what they believe that they can or can't do. And I think that's, you know, um, that's really what I want to like say to anybody. It doesn't matter, you know, where they come from. I mean, it's, I, I recognize that the, 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 the wine industry as a whole has a lot of challenges. Um, you know, with this, it's, that I think have been recently brought up with the different um, social movements that have, that have taken place and rightfully so. And I think that there's a lot of room for, um, for, the, for the industry to open up. And I think it's important. And, and what I'm seeing is that there, 
yeah, just that, that anybody can really can come into it and, and from any origin and that can succeed as long as, you know, as long as that they hold inte integrity as a, as a value in their life and that they approach winemaking um, with a sense of, yeah, as a sense of curiosity and a sense of humility. Um, and it will, it will happen. Any, anything can happen. Yeah. All right. One, la one last question for you. What in your mind makes a good wine? Uh, um, <laughs> a good wine. I'm not going to go at it from a technical point of view because that's only something that could be very personal to myself. A good wine for me is a good moment shared with another person. Um, I would say not necessarily a good moment. I would say a moment that is uh, an authentic moment that is shared with anybody because wine can be shared in a good moment of life and a bad moment of life. And I'm sure that most people will remember that that moment was with between two people or between different people, that moment was shared and there was wine that was enjoyed about it. That's something that we always remember is, oh, we had a great bottle of wine that night, or we had a great bottle of wine over this conversation. And I think that's what makes a great wine is that, that people can simply come together and enjoy that, that wine together. And as long as it's enjoyed, you know, and no matter what context, I think that's what makes a great wine. And it doesn't have to be, whatever it can be five something that has only five dollars on it and a label or it could be something that's a hundred or two hundred and it's great that's the point that's the purpose of it so awesome i, I love that so it's so all the questions that i have for you brendan is there anything uh we didn't cover that we should have covered anything i didn't ask that i should have asked no i feel like it's pretty broad i'm, I'm good okay. all right Excellent. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, for taking the time. I know it's fairly late there, so we really appreciate you making it work. Uh, I'm going to go, go ahead and stop the recording. I'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you, Rich. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.